about, and then we'll get into today's message. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this specific scripture. God, as we see some of the things leading up to your cross, Lord, I pray um, that you would give us uh, some fresh insight into this text, that uh, the story that that so many of us are so familiar with, uh, we wouldn't just uh, check out or we would be focused and, and we would see uh, what you're trying to teach each of us uh, through the passage, Lord. So we ask for the power of your Spirit. Uh, we know, Holy Spirit, ultimately, that you're the teacher. So we ask that you would bring these words to life in our life, that you would um, show us your, your goodness and your grace and um, show us also um, our depravity, uh, what the effects of sin are in our lives, Lord. I pray that you would just uh, minister to each of our hearts in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so basically, the, the last couple weeks, we see some significant events uh, that happen. Uh, Jesus, he institutes communion, and he institutes communion in the midst of uh, the reality and the knowledge that he knows his disciples are going to abandon him. Uh, then after that, um, he, he brings them to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, and he encourages them, exhorts them to, to watch and pray. Why? Well, he knew the challenge that was right around the corner. He knew Judas was going to come with all those soldiers to betray him. And Jesus was trying to set the disciples up for success, but they didn't listen and they gave in to complacency. And he kept going back to them. And what did he find them doing? They were sleeping. And probably the, the, the moment in their lives that where, where they really should have been spiritually engaged, perhaps more than any other moment, they were lazy. And they fell asleep. And we see the difference of Jesus. He was fervently, passionately praying for Praying to his father. Why? Because he knew the cross was right around the corner. And he knew he had to get in the right state of mind to endure the cross. So we see the passion of Jesus and the complacency of the disciples. Then, towards the end of Matthew chapter 26, we see this contrasting thing going on between uh, Jesus and Peter, right? We see the humility of Christ and the pride of, of Peter and Caiaphas and, and us and uh, some of the other people in the text. But Jesus, he's put on trial and he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try to plead his case. He doesn't try to get out of the consequences. Even though he's innocent, despite that, he remains silent. And then when he happens to open his mouth, he says one phrase that really, uh, basically, he, he's stating that he is God in the flesh, and they accuse him of, of blasphemy. It's not technically blasphemy because Jesus is God in the flesh, but they didn't believe that he was, so they accuse him of blasphemy. And we see the humility of Christ at this specific trial. And then contrary to that, we see the pride of Peter, right? In his pride, he said, Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll go to prison for, for you. I'll die for you. All these different things. And he didn't listen to, he didn't take heed to the warnings of Christ. And that pride led him to a state of denial. And then in the midst of his denial, remember how he responded. First, he was afraid of a little girl. And he says, I don't know Jesus. I don't follow him. Then after that, another girl comes to him and, and, and he adds an oath to his denial. Why? So she would believe his lie. And then finally, his last denial, he starts cursing and swearing. 
Why? So he can show, look, I'm not a follower of Christ. Look at my mouth, right? Christians don't speak like this. Uh, but basically what Peter was doing, it was he was all hot. He was all riled up. He was led by pride. He's trying to defend himself. But what he's really trying to defend is a lie. Jesus, on the other hand, he doesn't need to defend himself. Because he's not lying. He's in the truth and he stands firm in the truth. He stands confident in the truth. In this text, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 to 26, we're going to see again the gospel writers, specifically Matthew, doing this contrasting thing, comparing Christ to man. And we're going to see a, an extremely ugly side of man. We're going to see Judas and what he does after his betrayal and ends up hanging himself. We're going to see Caiaphas and the religious leaders so envious of Christ. That's one of the reasons that they put him to death. We're going to see Barabbas, this murderous man. We're going to see a multitude cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And when we read this text, when we look at it, we can be like, what's wrong with these people? Like they're putting Christ to death. What is wrong with them? But we are these people. And that's really the point of the text. We are Judas. We, we are the religious leaders. We have envy in our hearts. We are the murderer, even if we haven't committed murder. We are the multitudes crying out, crucify him, crucify him. This is who we are in our depraved nature. And the only solution to a man's depravity is God's grace. And we're going to see that. We're going to see the grace of God in the midst of man's depravity. The title of this teaching, God's grace and man's depravity. God's grace and man's depravity. When I say grace, in its simplest terms, I mean God bestows grace on us. It's unearned, unmerited favor from God. Grace, the, the, the gift of salvation is just that. It's a free gift. It's not something that we earn. We don't get God's grace because we're so good. We get God's grace because he loves us so much. And when I say depravity in its simplest terms as well, I'm talking about the moral corruption or wickedness of man. You could use sinful nature uh, as a synonym of this. And we'll understand this a little more as we unpack the text. But let's do just that. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Now, Jesus had already had a few trials. He was brought before Annas. He was brought before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. But remember, these trials were illegal for many reasons. One being that they were done at nighttime and you weren't allowed to have trials at nighttime. You had to have them during the day. If you had them at nighttime, it meant maybe you were trying to hide something, which they obviously were. So they have to have another trial during the day so that they can legally put them to death in the way that they want to. And it says they plotted against Jesus to do just that, to put him to death. This wasn't about finding truth. They were set in their ways. They were determined to put Jesus to death. They didn't want to know the truth. And we'll see some of this played out later. All they wanted to do is fulfill their agenda. And Jesus got in the way of that. So they were determined to kill him. Sadly, but truly, a lot of times people don't want to know the truth. They don't want the truth. They want to continue to believe the lie. They want to continue to attempt to fulfill their agenda. And if anything or anyone gets in their way, they'll do whatever it takes to get rid of that person. That's the case with the religious leaders. They'll go to any means, already illegal means, 
and how they went about this trial. And verse 2 says, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, when Rome occupied Israel, they took their right away to inflict capital punishment. So the Jews weren't allowed to put people to death. Even if in the Levitical law, there are certain circumstances where the law says, yes, if it's adultery, if it's murder, if it's this or that, um, uh, then yeah, you can put that person to death. But the Romans, they took that right away from them. So now the Jews, if they want to have Jesus put to death, they have to go to the leader of that region. And the leader of that region was Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor governor um, of Judea. Okay, uh, he, he actually was appointed prefect by Tiberius Caesar in 26 AD. Now, a prefect was a little more than a governor. A prefect was someone that they put in a specific position, in a specific place where there was lots of conflict going on, uh, a, a lot of violence, a lot of issues. Okay, it would be like... Uh, uh, it would be like uh, if you were the, the the mayor of Los Angeles or Chicago or something like that. You were appointed specifically, not just as a governor, but as a as a person that could help solve some of these uprisings and these issues that kept happening in Judea, specifically Jerusalem. Judea is the region. Jerusalem is the city. There was a lot of that going on. There's a lot of rebellion. There was a lot of revolts. There was a lot of, uh, of, 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 of Roman soldiers being killed. In fact, you have this group called the Zealots where they would kill Roman soldiers and they thought they were doing it righteously. They would have these little knives. They'd walk by them and they'd just, they'd just stab them. They'd shank them and, and kill them. Um, so you had a lot of this. This is why Pilate was put as the overseer, as the governor, as the authority figure over this region. There was a lot of problems in Jerusalem during this time period. Now, when you look at other historical records that talk about Pilate, and there's a lot of them, uh, Pilate uh, was considered to be a, an extremely cruel, murderous, corrupt man. Like he was a brutal guy. And it's interesting because when we look at this text, we don't see so much of the brutality with Pilate. There's also some, there, there's almost something uh, appealing about him because he's seeing Jesus in a different light than the religious leaders. In fact, he claims Jesus is innocent. But when you look at history, he was a very, very brutal, brutal man. I believe we see some of uh, a lack of brutality, not that he's not brutal in his text, uh, in the scripture, because I think Jesus had had an impact on Pilate in that moment. We see this unspoken respect that Pilate had for Jesus. The Jews, however, knowing that Pilate was this brutal man, this cruel man, this murderous man, they thought it was a sure thing. If we bring Jesus to Pilate, absolutely he's going to put him. Pilate's the guy that puts everyone to death, okay? So we're going to bring him to Pilate because we want to fulfill our agenda. We want to put Jesus to death. Now, remember, the only thing they really have against Jesus is the blasphemy thing, which wasn't blasphemy because he's God. And this, according to the Levitical law, was grounds for capital punishment. But this wasn't going to fly for Pilate. Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy. Certainly when it's not, when it's breaking a Levitical law that he doesn't follow. So what they do is they use some other things. They try to appeal to Pilate on a different level so that they can get Jesus killed. Look what they say in Luke chapter 23, verse 1. 
Luke 23, 1. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation. He's a threat to the Roman Empire. Okay. And forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. He's not paying taxes and he's telling people not to pay taxes. We know those things aren't true. And saying that himself is Christ, a king. Meaning he's a direct threat, not just to the Romans, but to Caesar himself. So they try to come up with um, some phrases to, to hit home for Pilate. They know the blasphemy thing isn't going to work for him. He doesn't practice a Jewish uh, religion. So they use these other things. Back to Matthew. Chapter 27, verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. See, Judas was remorseful, but he wasn't repentant. It's that difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Judas practiced worldly sorrow. He was remorseful because of the consequences, but it wasn't rooted in his relationship with Jesus. Nevertheless, there's a truth here. Sin does lead to remorse. This is the first point. Man's depravity leads to man's remorse. Man's depravity leads to man's remorse. Our sin always leads to regret. It always leads to remorse. I'd be surprised if someone in this room told me, uh, well, the last sin that I committed, I'm glad I did it. Like, I'm glad I did that thing. I'm glad I said that thing. I, I'm glad I had that thought. No, that's not the case. For believers, we always have remorse. We always have regret from those things. We are, why did I do that? I wish I wouldn't have done that. See, sin is like an intellectual virus. It's like a virus and its attempt is to destroy us from the inside out. And remorse is one of those tactics that this virus called sin, if you will, uh, uses. Uh, he wants to bring, he, sin wants to bring us to this place of remorse because it has an ultimate goal. In James chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 says what the goal of sin is. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, says this, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's the objective of sin. Sin is trying to bring forth death. Now, this doesn't just connect to the fact that we're all going to die unless the rapture happens. Sin wants to bring death to other areas of our life. Sin wants to bring death specifically to our relationship with God. Sin wants to bring death to our relationships with our families, our spouses, our children, our friends. You name it. Sin wants to bring forth death to our careers, to our jobs, to every good thing that God brings into our life. Sin's goal is to destroy that. Sin's goal is to bring death to that thing and remorse is one of the things that sin uses to do just that to bring forth that death that remorse sin's hope is that'll lead to hopelessness in our lives think about it when you have remorse when you have regret over sin 
I don't want to live with myself with this. I can't live with these thoughts anymore, these actions. I'll never be able to overcome this specific area in my life. Maybe you can relate to this. Most of you, probably all of you, have some regret or remorse about some things that you did maybe before you were a Christian. Probably some things you did while you were a Christian. Maybe some things you did this morning. I don't know. <laughs> but there, there is this remorse thing. There is this regret thing. And the enemy will try to use that in our life to bring us to that place of hopelessness. I'm always going to be this way. I'm never going to change. And you ever, and this will happen to me sometimes, like I'll just have a, I don't know even know where these things come from, like from the pits of hell, but, but I'll just have this thought of something I haven't remembered doing in, in a decade. And all of a sudden now I remember this thing and it's like, oh, it's like, oh, I just want to like cry out like, oh gosh, why did I do that? Why did I have this thought? Why did I say that thing? Oh, and there's that remorse. See, Judas, he had this remorse. He had this regret, but it didn't lead to repentance. He tries to make up for what he did, but we'll see, he doesn't fully believe in God's forgiveness. He doesn't have the faith that, that God can redeem this situation. He admits in verse 4, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Remember, Judas has, has spent close to three years with Christ. We don't know exactly when he came on board in the ministry. But he knows Jesus, like they're doing life with Jesus, they're eating with Jesus, breaking bread, living with Jesus at certain time periods, going on boats with Jesus, doing all kinds of ministry with Jesus. This is a man that spent a ton of time with Jesus and he says he's innocent. He's innocent. He spent three years, perhaps, with the Lord and he could account for the fact that the Lord was innocent. He was not guilty. Can your wife or husband say that about you in one day? Okay, He's innocent or she's innocent, right? Jesus, three years, nothing. And we know his whole life, he never committed sin. This is one of his best friends that saw him day in and day out. He has nothing. He can't even come up with one thing. He's sinned in this area, nothing. He's completely innocent. But the people, the religious leaders, look at how they respond. Verse four, and they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Basically, they don't care that he's innocent. Once again, they're not looking for the truth. They've made up their mind. They're determined to have Jesus put to death. What is that to us? What does that mean to us? We don't care if he's innocent or not. It's not about whether he's guilty or innocent. We don't care if he's innocent. We want to prove him guilty or at least get people to believe that he's guilty so we can accomplish our agenda and put him to death. So Judas, realizing that this was still going to happen, that they were going to put Jesus to death, it says he went out and hanged himself. He killed himself. Personally, I believe if Judas would have turned back to the Lord and asked for forgiveness, I believe the Lord would have forgiven him. Why? Because the Bible speaks of one sin that's unforgivable. And we can't get into this in too much detail today. Um, I'll give you the general explanation. Uh, but that one sin that's unforgivable, unforgivable is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And why is it unforgivable? Basically, when we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we're denying the work of the Spirit. 
What's the work of the Spirit? Spirit does many things, but number one objective is to point us to the truth of Christ, to convict us of sin and the fact that we're in need of a Savior. The point of the Spirit is to bear witness of Christ. That's his main objective, and he does a lot of other things as well, but that's his main point, to point us to Jesus Christ, to recognize that is the only way we can be saved, that is the only way we can be forgiven. So when we blasphemy the Holy Spirit, basically what we're doing is we're denying the only avenue by which we can be forgiven so we're saying no christ i don't want your forgiveness i don't believe that that's the only way i can be forgiven that's why it's the only unforgivable sin we're basically saying i don't need your forgiveness when we blaspheme the holy spirit so judas you could argue that he committed this we won't talk about that really but i personally believe that judas would have been forgiven had he come back, had he really repented, if he wasn't just remorseful, but if he turned back to the Lord and said, Lord, forgive me, I messed up, this is what I did. The Lord knew anyways, but he didn't do that. And I personally believe that Judas went to hell. Why? Well, among other scriptures, if you look at John chapter 17, in John chapter 17, this is the night before the Lord's death, the, the night before the, the text that we're in now, technically the same day, um, in regards to the Hebrews. <clears throat> John chapter 17, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, he's speaking of the disciples, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I've kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. All the disciples are good except for one. One is lost, meaning he hasn't been found. I do believe that Judas definitely didn't make it to heaven. I believe he could have. I believe he could have before he hung himself. I believe if he would have repented and came to the Lord and asked for forgiveness, the Lord would have forgiven him, but he didn't. See, it wasn't Jesus that condemned Judas. It was Judas that condemned Judas. And that's important for us to understand. This is the second point. Man's depravity leads to self-condemnation. Man's depravity leads to self-condemnation. When we sin or we fall or we fail, it's easier for us to fall into this place of self-condemnation. God, I, 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 I hate myself. I can't live like this anymore. These thoughts, these actions, these words. I'm never going to be able to overcome these things. Lord, it'd be better if I was just taken out of this world. It would be better if I just killed myself. That's what Judas's mentality was. But as believers, this is so important. It's so easy for us to confuse conviction and self-condemnation. They're very different things. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Self-condemnation comes from the enemy. This is the difference. Conviction says, I need to change, or you need to change. Self-condemnation says, you'll never change. You'll always be like that. There's no hope for you. You're never going to overcome. You're going to be stuck in these sins the rest of your life. Conviction is from the Spirit. Self-condemnation is from the enemy. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who those, for those who walk according to the Spirit. If we're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. The Lord's not condemning us, so why would we condemn ourselves? Again, the self-condemnation thing is another tactic of the enemy or of sin. If I can lead you to so much remorse, so much regret, 
and take that and lead you to a place of self-condemnation and hopelessness so that you can never turn. There's no way to overcome these things. Next step is death. That's the point of sin. That's what it's trying to do with each of us. This is literally from the pits of hell. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, there's nothing in your life, there's nothing in my life that's too big for the Lord to take care of, specifically as it pertains to sin. There's no sin in our life that the Lord looks at that and says, I can't deal with that one. I can't de- I could deal with murderous Paul, but I can't deal with your thing. Like, there's no way that's way too big for me. Sometimes we think that though. We think this thing's too big from the Lord. But the truth is, God has the power to deliver us from any sin, from every sin. And the Bible says that we can be confident that he eventually will. It's Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Philippians 1 6. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Christ loves us so much. You may have heard this said before. God, Christ, loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to keep us that way. He he loves us too much to let us remain in that state. He's determined. He loves us so much that he's determined to bring us to a place of perfection. Now, we'll never completely face that level of perfection in this life. We might have a good day or a good hour, a good few minutes, but we'll never fully experience that perfection until the day of Jesus Christ, until he comes back. But he promises that he's going to continue to do a good work in us. He's going to continue to to help us overcome more and more sin, sin after sin, sin after sin, transformed into his image from glory to glory. Meaning as believers, the evidence of our faith in one aspect is the fact that we're ever growing. We're always growing. We're constantly changing. The sins that I struggled with yesterday are not the sins that I struggle with today. Might have some sins, but it's not what it was before, okay? And I say a day. It could be a year. It could be a few years. The point is that the enemy will try to persuade us to believe the lie that we're never going to get over this thing, that we're never going to change. But that's completely contradictory to what the Lord says. You can be confident that he's going to complete the work, that he's going to change you and change you fully. Judas didn't believe in his promise. He didn't believe in the power. He didn't believe in the work. So he killed himself. He completely gave up. Now, this brings up a complicated question. Can you go to heaven after you've killed yourself? If you commit suicide, can you go to heaven? It's a lot more complicated than just a yes or no uh, question. Um, Now, I don't think Judas went to heaven uh, uh, because he he didn't truly repent. He didn't run back to the Lord. But when we talk about suicide... I do think there are people that have killed himself that have gone to heaven. Why do I say that? Because Samson killed himself, okay? Um, And he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. There's no doubt about it. Samson killed himself. He said, let me die. And he pushed the pillars and the whole thing came crashing down on him. Uh, And he saved uh, a lot of Israelites through that, but he did kill himself and he is in the hall of faith. Now, the only sin that is unforgivable is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, okay? But let me say this. I would be very hesitant to meet the Lord if I killed myself. Why? 
because if I kill myself, what is that saying? I don't have faith that God can change me. I don't believe that the Lord can change my circumstances, that he can change my heart, that he can change my situation across the board. So if I'm lacking faith in the Lord and his ability, does that mean that I don't have a saving faith? Um, And that could be evidence of, of not having a saving faith. I do believe Samson is in heaven, but he did kill himself. Uh, the point is, this gets a lot more complicated than if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. It's not as clear uh, as that when we look at the scriptures. Saul killed himself. Did he go to heaven or hell? Um, didn't seem like uh, he had a relationship with the Lord. So uh, I would say that he probably um, probably went to hell. Uh, the point is, there it, it, it gets more complicated. Judas... We see the disconnect between him and the Lord. We see the lack of godly sorrow. We see the worldly sorrow. And we don't see repentance. So I think that answers that question for you. Now, as if people don't know the Lord, then, um, then you're, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're saying this is the only way that I can be forgiven. Um, so uh, I'm not accepting the forgiveness. I'm going to trust in my own means for forgiveness. When we see the Bible, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible, the Holy Spirit points to the fact that we need a Savior. When we reject that Savior, it means I'm going to save myself, and we can't. The Bible is very clear. Let's talk about this between services. I'd love to talk more about it. No worries. Um, <laughs> then we won't get through it. We'll talk about this the whole time. and <laughs> I'll make time after service to address that specific stuff. Now, there is some confusion as to how Judas died. We see in the Gospels, it tells us that he hung himself. But when you look at Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 1, we see another event that took place. Verse 18, it says, Now this man, uh, speaking of Judas, purchased a field, with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, a Kaldama, that is the field of blood. Wait a minute. How did he die? This is the, what happened. He hung himself. Apparently, whether the rope broke or the tree branch broke, whatever the case was, he fell from the tree and he burst open. This is not a scene that I would want to see. Uh, the, the, the hanging was what actually killed him. After the hanging, he fell and he burst open. This is likely because this was Passover, right? Which marks the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The people weren't able to touch a dead body uh, or they wouldn't be able to eat the Passover. So people could have even seen uh, Judas up there and saying, we'll touch him after unleavened bread. What likely happened is because of the heat very hot area and time of year his body likely swelled up uh, swelled up swelled up i don't know and then the branch or the rope broke and he burst open uh hideous way to go out anyways matthew chapter 27 verse 6 both of those things happen is the point matthew chapter 27 verse 6 but the chief priests took the silver pieces and said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood and when they consulted together and bought them with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, this is interesting. Prophecy fulfilled. This prophecy is attributed to Jeremiah. 
but it's actually written down in Zechariah chapter 11. Okay, so that causes some confusion. Wait a minute. Why is Matthew saying that Jeremiah said this if Zechariah was the one that wrote this down? There is a, a, a passage in Jeremiah that talks about the potter's field, uh, but it's not the same passage that's being referred to. And you see the reference to 17 pieces of silver, verse 30. The point is, it causes some confusion. There's some really good, reasonable explanations for this. Perhaps it was Jeremiah that spoke it and Zechariah wrote it down. He says, Jeremiah, the prophet spoke this thing. Okay. Another explanation is how they would set up scrolls uh, in that time period. Often they would have several books on one scroll. Uh, so they could have had Jeremiah and a bunch of the minor prophets on a specific scroll. So Matthew's referencing that. It wasn't like what we have today. Or it could simply be a scribal error. And somewhere along the lines, somewhere uh, in, in history, um, it was written down. It used to be Zechariah and it was written Jeremiah. We don't really know, but this is a specific scripture that's written down. If you want to write this down in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 to 13. Uh, for time's sake, we won't look there, but that's the reference uh, that's being mentioned here in this text. I think the cooler thing is the fact that this prophecy was fulfilled. <laughs> when you look at how many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, which is over 300 prophecies, it's literally mathematically impossible that one man could fulfill all these prophecies. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. The evidence is so clear. If you study these prophecies, if an atheist studied all the prophecies that Christ fulfilled, I would be surprised if they didn't get saved. Uh, It's just absolutely fascinating, this being one. Now, they used the blood money and they purchased a potter's field. And this is interesting. A potter's field essentially uh, was a field where a potter would get clay from to make pots. Okay. Also in this field, they usually lived on this property uh, when they'd make uh, pots and there was like uh, cracks in them or they didn't like them or whatever. They'd often take the pots and throw them out in their yard and they would break. So a potter's field, uh, typically all the soil in the in the uh uh, and the clay was taken up. On top of it, you had broken vessels everywhere. So this land was utterly useless. You really couldn't use it for anything. So what they would typically do is use it for a graveyard. They would use dead body. They would put dead bodies there because the land really wasn't fruitful because of the clay missing and the, um, and the pots being everywhere. This is interesting. The Lord's blood money was used to purchase a place with broken vessels and dead people. There's a biblical uh, reason why this money was used to purchase the potter's field. All you have in a potter's field are useless, broken vessels and graves. And the Lord, by the price of his blood, he fixes broken vessels and he brings the dead to life. That's all through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross the blood money, if you will. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word. So that the governor marveled greatly. So if you look, uh, you don't have to flip there, uh, but in Luke chapter 23, 
verses 1 to 2, we already talked about it. Uh, this wasn't the first time he was brought before Pilate. When we uh, look at the Gospels together in collaboration, uh, we see that he came to Pilate, then Pilate was trying to get out of it. He didn't want to be the one that judged Jesus because he thought he was innocent. So he sent him to Herod. But when Jesus came to Herod, he didn't say anything to Herod. He wouldn't say anything to him. So Herod sent him back to Pilate. So this is technically the second time that he was brought before Pilate. This is the more significant time because we see the dialogue that happens here. Pilate asks him, asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply says, it is as you say. We only see a couple things that the Lord mentions uh, as far as um, arguing his case. And every time it's a question of his identity. And basically he says in both of these times that he defends himself is, I am the Christ. I am God in the flesh. I am the king of the Jews. Why? Because he wants them to know who he is. He's not hiding who he is. He's trying to tell them who he is, but he's not fighting for it either. He's confident in who he is. So he simply says, it is as you say. Now, the chief priests um, and, and the religious leaders, they're, they're trying to get Pilate to kill Jesus. So they keep accusing him of more and more things. He's a threat to the Romans. He's a threat to Caesar. He's a threat to the people and the taxes and all these different things. So Jesus, once again, he doesn't respond to them. It says he answered nothing. And Pilate, he marvels. It says the governor marveled greatly. Why? Why did he marvel so greatly? This isn't the first time Pilate has been in a situation uh, where he has to decide whether someone lives or dies. But I guarantee you, every other time, that person was pleading their case. Either they were guilty and they were lying and pleading that they were innocent, or they actually were innocent and they were pleading that they were innocent. No one has ever responded like Jesus Christ. Pilate has never seen someone respond like this. Now, let's put ourselves in Jesus' shoes as best as we can. Think if you're Jesus, he could have just said, it's all a hoax. I'm not really the Christ. Let me free. The game's over. It's done. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done with it. I didn't really think it was going to cost me life. Or being confident in who he is, he could have just done a miracle, right? He could have performed a miracle right in front of them. He could have performed a healing or raised a dead person to life again, but he didn't. Why? Well, all of this was part of God's plan from the beginning. He knew he had to die on the cross, but it's fascinating to see how the Lord, he doesn't plead his case. He's not arguing his case. He's not trying to, to prove the truth. Why? Because he knows the truth will prove itself true eventually. Matthew chapter 27, verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitudes one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Now, they had this tradition where uh, during the feast, Passover, they would release one of the prisoners. Pilate is making this suggestion because he's hoping that they'll just say, release Jesus and he can be done with all this. He, he can get out of this situation. He doesn't have to make a decision. So he probably picked the, the worst other, like the worst guy. Barabbas was probably like the worst of the other criminals thinking that this would be an obvious decision. Like, of course, you're going to let Jesus go and not this murderer. Who was Barabbas? He, he was a murderer. In Mark chapter 15, verse 7, 
it says just that, that Barabbas was a murderer. Basically, he was like a, a revolutionary terrorist, okay? He was, he was out to uh, overthrow the Roman rule there in Jerusalem. Uh, some say he might have been a zealot. Um, he probably killed Roman soldiers. We don't know if he killed uh, Jewish soldiers. The Bible uh, doesn't tell us specifically, but he was a murderer. Who was Barabbas? We're Barabbas. We're a picture of Barabbas. Maybe you've never killed anyone. Maybe you have. The point is that the Bible is making here is that Barabbas committed a sin and the wages of sin is death. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Barabbas was on his way to the electric chair, if you will, to the cross. He was on his way to, to die because he did something worthy of, of, of capital punishment being inflicted on him. And this is the truth for all of us. Whether it's murder or a little white lie, it says the wages of sin is death. We're Barabbas. We're in a position where we should die. We should be killed. We should be put in hell for eternity. Now, Pilate picks up on something. He understands why they're trying to put Jesus to death, at least one of the reasons. And it says in verse 18, for he knew that they, that they had handed him over because of envy. The religious leaders didn't want him dead because he did something wrong. They wanted him dead because he was, they were jealous of him. They were literally jealous of God. They didn't want God to be better than them. They were the center of their own universe. And this is something that every single person realizes at one point in their life. For some reason, I believe it's our depravity. We think as we're growing up, when we're kids especially, that the world revolves around us. That, that, that we're the center of the universe. And this was the problem. These religious leaders had that type of mentality. We're the center of the universe. We need to be the best. We need to be the greatest. And Jesus threatens that. But he's supposed to. Because we're not the center of the universe. He's the center of the universe. Until we realize the world doesn't revolve around us. It actually revolves around him. We'll be out at each other's throats in pursuit of our own glory. That's what the problem was with these religious leaders in their pride. They were always exalting themselves. They couldn't handle someone better than them. But the truth is, the Lord's always going to be better than us. And thank God he is. But it's something we have to come to terms with. Are you okay with being second best? Are you okay with being last? Because as far as the kingdom is concerned, Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. He wants us to have that desire in humility to pursue the last position because that's exactly what he did. He wasn't exalting himself. He allowed his father to exalt him. Matthew chapter 27, verse 19 while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of it. So Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat and he has an opportunity to make a righteous judgment, to make a just judgment. He's going to say, and later, there's no evil in this man. He's completely innocent. He's done no wrong. So Pilate looks at the evidence and he says, not guilty, but he's still going to put Jesus to death. Because of the influence of the people, which we'll get into in a moment. We're a picture of Pilate. 
We aren't righteous judges. We aren't just judges. In fact, our depravity in our sinful nature, it affects, it distorts our judgment. We don't judge things always so so clearly. We're poor judges. You'll often hear uh, unbelievers say things like, or imply things like, I I could be a better judge than God. I could be a fairer judge than God. Uh, If I was the judge of this world, then I wouldn't allow suffering. I I think I'm a more righteous judge than God, but the Bible proves to us that we aren't righteous judges. We're corrupt judges. Even when the evidence is right there, right in front of our faces, we'll choose something different because of the influence of culture, because of the influence of others. So Pilate, he's on the judgment seat and his wife comes to him and says, have nothing to do with this man. I've suffered many things in a dream because of him. Now, we don't know what Pilate's wife uh, dreamt, but it had to be something powerful. Think about it. We have dreams all the time and and sometimes we'll even have dreams where like the Lord will speak to us. But (laughs) have you had a dream? Like think about her situation. This dream is so powerful. She's so confident that she's going to say something to her husband about it. Like, I don't know what's going on, and I don't know the whole story, but this guy is legit, he's innocent, have nothing to do with this. This dream impacted her so much that she spoke up, she said something. I would love to know what this dream was, but we don't. So, (laughs) Pilate, in his ignorance, in his pride, he didn't listen to his wife. His wife warned him, this is something you don't want to be a part of. And he ignored her. Guys, husbands, sometimes our wives see things that we don't see. And they try to warn us about things. And they try to get across to us things. And we're, no, 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 it'll be fine. It, it, it'll be all right. I got this. I got Pilate, he messed up. If he just would have listened to his wife, he wouldn't have been responsible for the death of Christ. Matthew chapter 27, verse 20. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the chief priests and elders, they persuade the multitudes, hey, we want Barabbas, let's kill Jesus. Point number three, man's depravity is influenced by culture. Man's depravity is influenced by culture. It was the people around them. It was the leaders. It was the multitude. See, the leaders influenced the multitudes and the multitudes influenced Pilate. And Pilate knows it's wrong, but he's still going to follow through. Why? Because of the pressure of the world around him. Oh, the world doesn't affect me. I'm strong. I'm spiritual. I, I pray. I'm filled with the spirit. Yada, yada, yada. Lies. They're all lies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 It says that bad company corrupts good morals. It doesn't matter how much you think you got it together, how close you think you are with the Lord. If you hang out with the wrong people long enough, you'll do the things that they do. It's inevitable. See, Pilate, he was influenced by these multitudes, and the multitudes were influenced by the religious leaders. Speaking of our culture, sometimes we don't realize it, But our moral standard is often influenced by the culture that we live in. There's probably things that we think or do or say that don't line up with God's moral standard because 
It's the culture that we grew up in. This is what's acceptable in our culture. And many people believe that, that you know, governments and, 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 and the leaders in a culture should be able to establish what the moral standard is. But when we go that route, when we look to man to establish the moral standard and we ignore God's moral standard, we're heading down a slippery slope, a dangerous path. Nazi Germany. It was cultural to kill all the Jews. It was cultural to, 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 to kill everybody that, that, that wasn't, um, in Hitler's eyes, uh, the supreme race. That was culture. So how can you say that they were wrong? We know they're wrong. Why? Because it contradicts God's word. How can someone that doesn't believe in God's word say that they were wrong? You can't. There is no basis for a moral standard if man is creating the moral standard. It's only when we recognize that God's ultimately the author of the moral standard. He sets the rules. He sets the laws. And we conform to those, not create our own. And when we look at the word world today, it's running rampant. These groups and groups and cultures, they establish what moral standards are okay and what moral standards aren't okay. And we look at our nation slipping and falling into this deeper and deeper hole. It's all because of the fact that we get away from God's moral standard. And you look at today, everybody's got an opinion about what's wrong with the United States, right? And what's wrong with the, with the world. And they, they're all pointing the finger at different groups, right? Um, it's the white supremacist, it's Antifa, it's uh, Black Lives Matter movement, it's Trump, it's this person, it's the millennials, it's Generation X, it's the baby boomers, and everybody's pointing the finger. And yeah, there's issues in every group. But the problem isn't them, the problem's me. The problem is you. The problem is us. The problem, let's say it always is, the problem is sin. That's what the problem is across the board. It doesn't matter what your group stands for. The problem is that we've gotten away from God's moral standard. And as we get further and further away from God's moral standard, we're going to continue a rapid decline to a pit that we'll never be able to get out of. That's the real issue that's going on. And the sad truth of it is, we're so influenced by our culture. We're so influenced by what this person says and what that person says. It doesn't matter what they say. If it doesn't line up with God's word and we listen to them and we follow them, we're setting ourselves up for destruction, walking down a dangerous path. That's the problem with the world today, getting away from God's standard. This is exactly what happened with these religious leaders, with this multitude, with Pilate himself. He knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. But because of his, the influence of the world around him, he chose what was wrong. And he's going to make a decision that he can never go back from. Matthew chapter 27, verse 21. I'll try to pick up this last section quick. Matthew chapter 27, verse 21. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Men love darkness so much that they would rather be in fellowship with a murderer than their creator. And this speaks of us too. We'd rather be in fellowship with sinners than the one that created us in our depravity, in our sinful nature, apart from the grace of God. That's who we are. This speaks of a future event. Man 
doesn't want Jesus Christ, so they're going to get the Antichrist. They'd rather have, uh, they'd rather have a corrupt leader with them and fellowship with them over them than the leader that created them. This is also a picture of the gospel. See, Barabbas, wages of sin is death. He's going to die. Jesus, in his grace, he says, I'm going to take his place. We can't think for a minute that it was really all these leaders that really made Jesus get crucified. Jesus put himself out there. He could have got out of the situation if he wanted to. Both things are important. But the point is, point number four, God's grace is the cure to man's depravity. God's grace is the cure to man's depravity. This is exactly what Jesus did. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He became sin who knew no sin, that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Literally, he paid a price that we deserved. He suffered a death that we deserved. He bore the the consequences on his shoulders. And and Barabbas, he was able to go free. When we look at the grace of God, as I mentioned before, it's not because we earned it. It's not because we're so good. It's not because we love God so much. It's because he loves us so much. And it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us when we got it together. He didn't die for us when we repented. He died for us when we were in the midst of our sin. He died for us knowing everything that we had done, knowing everything that we're doing and knowing everything that we will do. That's when he died for us. That's the grace of God. That's the love of God. It's an invitation. The grace of God it is an invitation. It's not the judgment of God or the wrath of God that woos us. We shouldn't come to the Lord out of fear of judgment. Yes, we're supposed to fear the Lord. That's a different topic. But he invites us in with his grace. He woos us with loving kindness. The Bible says he draws us in with loving kindness. And this loving kindness, this grace is the only cure to man's depravity. It's, it's the love of God. That's, that's the only thing that can free us from the bondage of sin, which we'll get into uh, in just a minute. This grace that cures man's depravity was displayed on the cross. Let him be crucified, they said. See, the crucifixion, it wasn't a Jewish punishment. It was a Roman punishment. In fact, most Jews believed that the crucifixion was despicable. It was a horrible way to go out. You could never look at the Levitical law and say, oh yeah, this is a justified way to inflict capital punishment. No, they wouldn't do something like that. Now we see evidence of the crucifixion in Psalm 22, which we'll get into uh, probably next week. Uh, but it was really pointing to the fact that the Messiah would be crucified before crucifixion was even a thing, before it was even invented. But the point is, man is so depraved that they would choose for their creator to die on a cross. This is the fifth point. Man's pinnacle of depravity was the crucifixion. Man's pinnacle of depravity was the crucifixion or was displayed at the crucifixion. What do I mean? Think about this. God comes to earth to identify with man, to relate to man, to suffer in all ways that we've suffered, to show us how much he loved us. Not only that, he lives a perfect life, heals a bunch of people, pours out his love on people, prays for people, shows people the way to inherit eternal life. He lives in absolute perfection. And man says, 
I want him dead. Why? Because I don't want him ruling over me. I don't want him as the authority in my life. I want to be my own God. This is what's displayed through this text. Man, and his depravity would rather kill his creator than submit to him. This is what they're doing. Crucify him. Crucify him. It goes on. Matthew chapter 27, verse 24. When Pilate said that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Pilate thinks he can just wash his hands from water and he's clear. It doesn't work like that. Pilate is guilty of the blood that was spilled by Jesus Christ. But the truth of the matter is, none of us can wash our hands from his blood. We're all guilty. It wasn't just Pilate that put him to death. It wasn't just the religious leaders that put him to death. It wasn't just Judas betraying him or him taking the place of Barabbas. It's all of us. We are all guilty of spilling the blood of Christ. Not one of us is innocent from it. It's so easy to read this text and be, what is wrong with these people? But we're those people. That's what the Bible is telling us. We are this depraved. Verse 26, that's where we'll close. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when they had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So Jesus pays the punishment that Barabbas deserves. Barabbas gets released. He's able to go free. Sixth final point, God's grace leads to our freedom. God's grace leads to our freedom. God's grace leads to our freedom. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, uh, in other words, for freedom, he set us free. He didn't set us free because we love him so much. He didn't set us free because we're so righteous or we got it together. He set us free because he loves us. For freedom, he set us free. He doesn't want us to bear the weight, bear the consequences of the bondage of sin. He wants to free it, free us from that. It's exactly what he did with Barabbas. But our freedom... It cost him dearly. It cost him being scourged. Scourged. It cost him being crucified. Now, scourging was a severely brutal punishment. It was straight up torture. Now, what they would usually use as a whip uh, when we talk about scourging is something called a flagellum. Okay, it's similar to the uh, British version of the uh, cat of nine tails. Okay, it would have a, a handle and then you'd have these uh, several strands, sometimes three, sometimes nine, um, however many. It doesn't tell us in the text, but at least at least a few. Uh, and these strands on the end of them, they would either have metal balls uh, sharp bone fragments or sharp pieces of metal, uh, and sometime a com- sometimes a combination of each. The point of being scourged was to bring someone to the brink of death, to, to torture them till they were almost dead, to bring them to such a state of weakness that they would never go back to doing that specific thing again. See, this was so brutal. People often died from it. And this flagellum, uh, basically, if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, there's some accuracy there, but it's even more brutal than that. We look at the Passion of the Christ, and that's soft compared to what actually happened to Jesus. It says he was unrecognizable. You couldn't even tell him that it was him anymore. You couldn't even see his face. He was so messed up. When they scored someone with a flagellum, often you would see arteries, you would see veins, you would see organs exposed, literally body parts, internal organs, internal veins, things like this, hanging out of the individual. This is what they're doing to them, and they almost beat them to death. 
typically when they would begin scourging someone, that criminal had the opportunity to confess their sins, confess their wrongs. And as they confessed their wrongs, they'd lighten up on the scourging. Okay, they're getting it. They're learning their lesson. But remember, Jesus remains silent the whole time. So he's getting full-fledged, full-throttle scourging the entire time. The entire time. This is also a Roman thing. This wasn't a Jewish thing. See, Jews, they had uh, rules about whipping people and the whip they used was soft compared to the scourging that Jesus received and they could only whip someone up to 40 times. Often they would do 39 times just so they didn't break the law if they miscounted. But this was like nothing compared to the scourging that Christ suffered, literally. Had the life almost beat out of him. But this is what our freedom cost him. Our freedom, it doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't cost us one thing. That's why grace, that's why salvation, it's a free gift. But our freedom, it cost Christ everything. It cost him everything. And see, the grace that the Bible teaches, it's not a cheap grace. It's not a, oh, Jesus went through that so I can just be free and yada, yada, yada. No, we're supposed to look at the cross and the scourging and everything that he walked through. And that's supposed to produce something in us. That's supposed to reveal to us how much God loves us. That he would be willing to do this for our freedom in hopes that we wouldn't return to the bondage that he freed us from. We'll close here in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. I referenced it just a couple minutes ago. I just want to read it for you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Consider what Christ did so that we could be free. He put his life on the line. He was tortured to death. So that we could be free. So it says, don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Specifically, it's talking about legalism. But it can relate to any of our sins. Christ died so you could be free. The chains are off. They're not there anymore. But sometimes we put them back on. We put the handcuffs back on. And we don't walk in the freedom that Christ died for, that he paid the price for. We choose the bondage that he freed us from. So what are we doing with the freedom that the Lord has gifted us? Do we believe in a cheap grace or do we believe in the grace that the Bible teaches a grace that's supposed to teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust to live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age. See, grace is the cure to our depravity, but it doesn't stop there. It's grace upon grace and grace is called to teach us. Its objective is to, to teach us to live in freedom, to live an abundant life, to live the life that the Lord died for. So what are we doing with the freedom that Christ paid the price for? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know who we are apart from you and, and the depravity um, that we're born with, that we struggle with. Lord, we know that, that you came to cure that, to, to solve the problem once and for all. Lord, I pray that we would have a true understanding of your grace, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would understand how much our freedom costs you, Lord, that we wouldn't just take it for granted, 
that we would allow your grace to, to teach us what it's supposed to teach us, that we would be so grateful, so thankful for the freedom that you've given us, that we would choose freedom. You give it to us, but we sometimes have to make that choice to choose the freedom that you paid the price for or to choose the bondage that you tried to free us from. Lord, so please give us the hearts and minds and will to choose your freedom. In your name, amen.